Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Brian Thatcher, and welcome to this podcast of Mercy Unbound. Today, I get to speak with theologian and apologist Marcus Peter. We're going to talk about common misconceptions non-Catholics have about why we pray to Mary, do we worship or honor her, the saints, and on and on it goes. I hope you enjoy the show. Please share, and thank you again for joining me for Mercy Unbound. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Brian Thatcher, and welcome to Mercy Unbound. It's a series that aims to provide hope and avenue for healing, and one that will help you understand and then live the great mercy of God. With me today, I've brought back a gentleman we had on some time ago, and Marcus Peter is a Catholic biblical theologian and evangelist. He's the director, founder of the St. Peter Institute for Scripture. And evangelization and um he has walked the walk he's he's actually if i recall was practicing uh, outside the faith for a while began to study the faith and um i've asked him to come on today to just our small little effort to help clarify some misunderstandings uh that protestants have about the blessed mother saints the angels the communion of saints and uh, we're going to just ask the holy spirit to take take over today um and it, it, thanks so much for coming back marcus it's great to see you oh no I'm, I'm honored to be on this program and as usual honored to be serving alongside you and teaching the faith and bringing souls to jesus christ marcus tell us where people can go to your website and what are they sure, going to yeah so um I founded the St. Peter Institute to put out resources in the Catholic faith. Uh, it's stpeterinstitute.com. Uh, but of late, a little under a year ago, I was hired by Ave Maria Radio. So uh, I, I now host a radio and TV program with them called Unveiling the Covenants. I also regularly uh, co uh, sorry, host in place of Al Cresta whenever he's unavailable, uh, Cresta in the Afternoon, which is an EWTN uh, uh, produced program. So yeah, my name's kind of out there a little bit now, you know, since since we last spoke, it's rather funny. I didn't, I didn't expect it, but, uh, but I, I do a lot now in terms of apologetics and writing and preaching. And uh, I guess you can Google Marcus PJ, you're going to find a series of videos and Ave Maria Radio. And yeah. That's, that's wonderful. Um, so again, one thing I hear over and over again, sometimes it's from people that kind of surprises me. They come and start blasting me or you see stuff on social media and kind of walk us through, you know, we get accused of loving Mary too much and that somehow detracts us from Mary. And it's contrary, they say, to the first commandment for we, we must not worship anyone other than God. Walk us through that. So, you know, this is not an uncommon attack. And unfortunately, it's one that not only is all too common, it's, it's also uh, far too overused and very poorly construed. I remember when I was a Protestant, my pastors had taught us what John Martin only calls it the doctrinal dance. You know, uh, when you're dialoguing with Protestants, it, it, they, they never stay with a topic long enough to engage you. They hit you with a couple of Bible verses. And then as soon as you start responding, they jump to the next one and then hit you with a couple of Bible verses. And as soon as you start responding, they jump to the next one. But we were trained to do that. 
Because if you inundate them with as many cherry-picked Bible verses, then hopefully what would wind up happening is the person would be overwhelmed by scripture and convinced. So I remember doing that and I had major arguments against the Catholic Church, but my last argument was always Mary because I believed Mary was my trump in the hole, if you will, my trump card or my ace in the hole. Sorry, I didn't mean to mix up those euphemisms there. Uh, my belief was that no matter how much a Catholic might be able to defend, even by scripture, all of the teachings about the church, it would, they, would, they would not be able to defend the church's teaching on Mary. I was firmly convinced of it. And I was wrong. I was factually wrong. And the reason why I was wrong was because I had a poor understanding of scripture. Uh, but, but that's where this all starts. It, it starts with a poor reading of scripture. So we have to go all the way back to the 1500s. When Martin Luther uh, brought about the Protestant Reformation, I don't think even he, and I know actually I can say this with certitude, he had no concept that it would become what it is today. But Luther himself, together with some of his companions and cohorts who, you know, they detracted from each other a little, but they all supported the revolt, you know, Calvin and Wesley, all of them were actually very Marian, very, very Marian. Uh, Calvin, for example, does not deny the fact that Mary is mother of God, and he rebukes anyone who, who was to utter that. Luther denied nothing about the church's teaching on Mary and her role uh, in, in salvation history. Uh, Wesley himself, you know, numerous writings on, on the place of Mary. This whole anti-Marian bias really starts a little over 100 years ago. And it starts with the, rather, the evangelical fundamentalist movements who, in looking at scripture, did not see explicitly any, any, any sort of uh, glorification of Mary. And if the, if the scriptures don't say Mary is the mother of God, well, it's not in scripture. So therefore, anything that's contrary to that explicit sentence in scripture not being there is, is, is somehow teaching heresy and, and demonic blasphemy. So that's where this all comes about. And, and I found, well, at, at the very least in my research, one of the things that truly convinced me was realizing that the, the early revolters were in fact very Marian. Now, every Protestant will say, oh yeah, Luther's my hero, Calvin's my hero, Wesley's my hero, my church comes from this branch or whatever. And if you're willing to say that, you're gonna to have to be willing to say, well, this man was very Marian. And, but, but that's only the starting point. The second thing was for me to realize that in order to properly read scripture, I had to understand Mary's role all the way from the Old Testament. And a proper reading of scripture will demonstrate that what the church is teaching about Mary is not overdone. You know, like you said, we are accused of loving Mary too much. It's that we, are, we could never love her enough. And so, so that, that's what I'm gonna, I, <laughs> that's a lofty task to do in this episode, but I'm gonna try to hit some of the, the mountain pieces. And, and I'd like to begin with my own attack against Mary. I remember that the Immaculate Conception was probably my biggest uh, attack. I, and you know, like Queen Mother and whatnot, I, I had all those attacks too. But I believed very firmly that there was no way in which the Catholics could prove that Mary was completely sinless. And I was so convinced by scripture because you, you look at say Romans 3.23 and it's quoting the Psalms, you know, all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not one, not one is saved. Well, when considering that, I'd say, well, okay, then therefore, you know, you call Mary sinless. Well, what I had to do was then look at the ratio, the reasoning behind what Paul was trying to say. When Paul wrote that, 
he was writing to the Roman church who, despite having been preached to, Rome was not a church he planted uh, or, or developed. He, despite having been preached to and having their own bishop, Rome had their own issues. There were backsliders as with every one of the churches. So when Paul writes, all have sinned, none, none, all have fallen short of the glory of God, none of us are innocent, what he's effectively trying to say is none of us can presume to be better than the other. But herein lies the problem. A baptized infant, no one would say, has sinned until reason comes about. You know, like, even if a person doesn't believe in baptism, or even if a person doesn't believe in the, uh, the Catholic Church or the Christian faith, no one will look at a baby and go, that baby is sinful. You know, just by nature, we understand that there are certain realms and, and pockets of people who factually are not sinful. So if we can understand that principle and apply it to a further reality, we need to understand how the early church understood salvation. This whole, so, you know, the, the Lutheran principle of uh, soteriology, salvation, is that God, man was completely manure, you know, completely cow poop, and God covers us with grace. The Catholic Church has never taught that. The Catholic Church has taught us that, no, that there's a certain goodness inherent to the human nature, and God's grace comes in and elevates us and purifies us. Why? Because that human nature will one day ascend to the heavens. It's that same human nature. There is a resurrection of the body. Now, if we understand that, and let's take it a step further, there are two ways that the, the apostles and, and the church fathers write about being saved. Uh, Athanasius uh, and Ansel both kind of touch on this, and Aquinas as well. On the one hand, once a person has fallen into mud, the logical thing is take them out, wash them clean. But there's another way in which a person can be saved from the mud. Stop them from falling in in the first place. Now, that's just an analogous thing to what God did in, in Mary's life. In order for us to understand where we find this in scripture, I had to learn Greek. And honestly, it was all Greek to me when I first started. I'm sorry. That, that's a... <laughs> but, but, but this is what happened. I was introduced to Luke chapter 1, verse 28. For those of you who are interested in wondering where I get this, it's in chapter 3 of uh, Behold Your Mother. Tim Staples takes us through this whole argument. Uh, but but and, and if I'm remembering the page number correctly, I want to say it's like page 44 to 46, the, the, the crux of this argument. But, but the heart of the matter really has to do with this. In Luke chapter 1, verse 28, we see the angel Gabriel come to Mary. And when he comes to Mary, we, we, we need to start realizing these things. These are theological realities that we can't take for granted. Angels, number one, cannot function of their own accord. Once a soul is in heaven, an angel is in heaven, they can only function in full accordance with the will of God. That means, number two, they can only speak what the Lord wills them to speak. An angel will never deviate from the divine mission, ever. Fundamental principles. Number three, because they're in the presence of God, they are resplendent with a certain degree of the glory of God. And that's why when we take a look at the Bible, you know, whenever angels show up, the first thing an angel says is, be not afraid. Why? Because sometimes the glory of the Lord is terrifying to the fallenness of human nature. But when Gabriel appears to Mary, he doesn't say, be not afraid. And we should, we should know to look out for that. In Luke chapter 1, he does not say, be not afraid because Mary was trembling and fell, fell to the ground, which tells us that there was a certain thing about her nature that, that was unafraid of the glory of God. That should give us reason for pause. I mean, this, this 12 to 16-year-old girl in Nazareth was unafraid of a messenger of the glory of God. Brian, I got to be very honest with you. 
if the angel Gabriel, Michael, or Raphael showed up to, uh, in, before me right now, I would fall to the ground. And, and you don't even have to go so far as angelic creatures. If, I don't know, if I say like Padre Pio, you know, if God were to give him the grace to show up, I would fall to the ground if, if, if he was truly Padre Pio and resplendent with the glory of God. So that, that's one thing to cause us pause. Mary was unafraid at the, angels, uh, at the angel's presence. Now we need to ask ourselves, why is that so? Well, the words of the angel give us the clue. He looks at her and he says, hail full of grace. And as Catholics, you know, we pray that prayer, hail Mary full of grace. The problem is the prayer doesn't say hail Mary full of grace. In the scriptures, it actually goes hail full of grace. That's like saying, uh, hello, evangelistic one. You know, that like I completely supplant your name with a title of what you do, Brian. Hello, oh preacher of the gospel. Well, he says, hello, full of grace. He changes her name. He supplants her name with the title of full of grace. Again, an angel doesn't speak unless the Lord God has willed him to say those words. God himself calls Mary full of grace. That should startle us. I mean, I got to tell you, when I found out that that's what, uh, that's what God himself regarded Mary as, it, it threw me for a loop considering everything I'd said about Mary. But we've got to take it a step further. That word kekaratomene, the, the Greek word, so it's kaire kekaratomene. It's really two words, hail full of grace, right? So he, he changes her name. He gives her this title. And kekaratomene doesn't just mean you are full of grace now. The New Testament Koine Greek favors a certain form of the verb for certain things. It's called the perfect participle, which simply means that we have linguistic reason to believe that when he said she was full of grace, she was is and will forever be full of grace. I gotta tell you, Brian, when I when I realized that, my jaw dropped. I what this simply means is the early church understood God had preserved this woman from the beginning of time. He had this in mind. From the fall of Adam and Eve, he was going to preserve this woman by the foreseen merits of Jesus' obedience on the cross that she may not be sinful so that she could sinlessly bear the, the, the physical body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's only the full of grace part, right? She, she was, is, and will forever be full of grace. Well, we need to take one step back. The angel says kaire to her. Now, there are a couple of Greek words for different things that are greetings. Kaire is a greeting that's typically given out of respect. Very commonly, it's given for lower subjects to members of royalty. Now, again, we need to go back to the fundamental theological principle. An angel cannot speak unless God has given him those words. The Lord our God, the infinite, absolute, eternal Lord our God, looks at this created being and he grants her the title of queenship. Then, then. Kaire kekaratomene. This angel is basically saying, hail to thee, my queen, who was, is, and will forever be perfect in the grace of my God. There alone, we see the fact that we don't respect Mary enough. I mean, we, we, we will never be able to do justice to the respect that she's owed when the angel of God hails her as queen. I mean, we're just not. 
Now, from there, what do we do then? We take a look at a couple of scripture verses and we see that some people say, well, you know, uh, uh, Jesus disrespected Mary. You know, like you take a look at John chapter two, when Mary says, sorry, that's, that's my imitation of a Southern Baptist. When, when Mary says, um, they have no more wine, Jesus responds, what to you and to me, woman? <laughs> if you read it in the English, it sounds rude. It sounds like Jesus was disrespecting his mother. And quite frankly, if anyone spoke to their mother that way, I wouldn't be surprised if they got slapped upside the head. You know, they're like, like, that's just rude. Until we understand that Jesus would never dishonor his mother that way for a lot of reasons. Number one, we've just established she is queenly and she's full of the grace of God. So she wouldn't err in what she's doing, which then brings about the other question. Jesus would not violate one of the Ten Commandments. It would be a violation of one of the fundamental tenets of the Levitical law. And Jesus did not come to, uh, to break the law. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Matthew 5, 17. So Jesus wasn't disrespecting Mary. So how do we understand that? Well, let's go back to the Greek. Ti emoi kaisoi gune. What to you and to me, woman. What to you and to me, woman. In order for us to understand what's happening in John chapter 2 at this wedding, we need to go back to Genesis chapter 2, 3, and 4 at the wedding. Well, especially 2 and 3. God creates Adam and Eve. Man names his bride woman. And then in Genesis chapter 3, after the wedding, there's this event of fruit. There's, there's this event of the fall. They choose the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, versus the, the fruit of the tree of life. Now, those images need to be born at the forefront of our mind because when we fast forward then to John chapter 2, no one in scripture in the Septuagint is given that same title, Gune, woman, until Mary comes along. What Eve was called in John chapter 2, the woman, Hogune, Mary is now called, Tiemoi Kaisoi Gune, which means the gospel writer John understood Mary was and is the new Eve. And that makes Jesus the new Adam. And just like in the old garden, in the old wedding, Adam named his bride woman. In this new wedding, Christ names his bride, if you will, the new Eve, Mary. But over and above that, what, do, what, what does she ask Jesus to do? Well, she says they have no more wine. The prophets had always talked about how when the Messiah comes about, there would be an overabundance of wine. Well, what do we understand to be the fruit of the tree of life? The Eucharist, which is bread and wine. What Jesus brought forth was a symbol of the fruit of the tree of life. So what the old Eve did in introducing the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil to Adam, the new Eve reverses in her obedience by bringing about the manifestation of the fruit of the tree of life in the New Testament through the new Adam. Now, all of that sounds a little lofty. Let's get right down to it. What that simply means is this. Mary is functioning in this regard in her place as intercessor. Mary is functioning in this regard in her place as queen of the new covenant because she knew that Christ is king of the new covenant. Every covenant requires a kingship. Every covenant warrants a queenship. And Mary understood that role. She was and is truly queen mother of the new and eternal covenant. So honestly, if a proper reading of scripture will simply very simply show this. We don't love Mary too much. We could never love Mary enough. Why? Because all we are doing is emulating Christ. 
When Christ calls her woman, he wasn't disrespecting her. He was giving her an honor that no other woman prior to Eve had received. And even then, she's being named as the new Eve. So yeah, uh, I mean, th that's a little bit. So I, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll give it back to you and, and let's just go over that. And I wanna see what, what else we'd like to talk about from there. Marcus, you've mentioned several times there about queenship. Uh, doesn't that even go back to Jewish tradition? Jesus, we forget Jesus was a Jew. David, Bathsheba, Solomon, walk us through this concept of the queen mother. Absolutely. So in order to understand the concept of the queen mother, we're going to go, we're going to have to go all the way back to uh, the book of first Kings and, uh, and then it transcends into eventually the book of second Chronicles. But what we're going to see in first Kings, so you're going to see this in first Kings chapter two, God, okay, we need to go even further back. Yeah, we, we need to go into 2 Samuel 7, first of all. 2 Samuel 7, we see that David wants to build a temple for God. And then God stops him and says, no, you want to build a house for me? No, 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 I'm going to build a house for you. And the word that he uses for house translates better into dynasty. I'm going to build a dynasty in and through you. And we eventually see that a big part of that dynasty is that the queen mother would be a, a, a pretty pivotal role in, in that dynasty, in the new Davidic covenant. So what is the queen mother? Well, we have to go back to Middle Eastern history for this. Near Eastern history has always had it that the kings, and this is unfortunate, this was not part of God's plan, this is just something that happened. The kings always married multiple women. The reason for this was multifold. The primary reason is because an understanding of covenant. If a king marries the daughter of another king, he is now the in-law of this king. And now we are covenanted as family. You will not attack me. I will not attack you. So it was a means of forming political bilateral relations by means of forming familial bonds. Covenant was taken that seriously. So the problem is if the king is king and he has, I don't know, 300 wives and 700 concubines, like the scripture says about Solomon, who sits on the throne as queen? You got one king and 700 queens or uh, 1,000 queens. That doesn't make sense. Well, what used to happen was even though he had hundreds of wives, he would only have one mother. So it was very common for the ruling king to have his mother sit beside him on the throne. In fact, so prominent was the place of the queen mother that whenever she entered the throne room, normally whenever the king enters the throne room, everyone stands until the king is seated. But when the queen mother enters the throne room, even the king stands. And, and we see this. Solomon stands uh, to honor Bathsheba as she comes into the throne room. And it's a very, very common thing that happened in ancient Judaic history and the Davidic kingdom. Now let's fast forward from there. As Jesus is establishing the new Davidic covenant, the new Davidic kingdom, which is the church, everyone understood Mary is the queen mother. This was not something that was uh, that needed explanation, it was taken for granted. Mary held a place of, of honor and almost queenship amongst the apostles. The apostles understood that them numbering 12, Jesus said, you will sit on the thrones of the 12 tribes. They knew they were going to be the rulers of the 12 tribes, but they also knew one step further when the Messiah came, the 12 tribes would not be confined to Israel. In fact, God's plan during the Exodus was that the 12 tribes would be firstborn nations, forerunners for the entire world. So when Jesus said, you will, be, you will sit on the throne of the 12 tribes to judge the nations, they understood they, the, the apostles, the 12, the, the 12 apostles would be overseeing the entire world. The gospel was to go to the ends of the earth. And if that's the case, if Christ is king 
and the 12 apostles sit as vassal kings under this, this head king, this chief king, Jesus Christ, they knew Mary was queen mother. And this is why we see when, jo when Jesus is hanging on the cross, when Jesus looks at John and says, John, behold your mother. This wasn't a very surprising thing to do. He had, he had the legal obligation to care for his mother's well-being, being the only son. Which, by the way, this is also evidence of the fact that Mary had no other children. Because if he did have other children, Mary's Levitical care would, uh, according to Leviticus, Mary's care would fall to the next born son. But because Jesus didn't have any other siblings, he had to give, it, he had to give her to John. John, one of the kings, one of the rulers, would take the queen mother and live with her. We also know that the early apostles and the early gospel writers ran to her for stories. How do we know this? Well, the gospel of Luke, for example, chapters one, two, three, and four, the infancy narratives, no other gospel details it but Luke. The only way that could have happened, he went straight to the source and asked what happened. So it, it was very clear that the apostles held Mary in very high esteem that the concept of the gabirah, the, the, the Hebrew word, the, the, the queen mother, was very alive among them. But I want to solidify this theme once more by going all the way to the end of Revelation 11 and spilling over into uh, Revelation chapter 12. Well, by this time, the Ark of the Covenant had been gone for about 500 years, yeah, four or 500 years. And the, and the Jews, just context for all of you who are listening, I sometimes presuppose a lot of Catholics know these things, so please forgive me. For the Jews, prior to Jesus' coming, the temple was the locus of their identity. And the temple was located in the heart of Jerusalem on Mount Zion and on this particular rock structure. That rock was where Abraham supposedly nearly sacrificed Isaac. In the heart of the temple was the Ark of the Covenant. The temple was the locus of their identity and the Ark of the Covenant became the heart of the Jewish people's identity. It became the symbol of God's presence with the people. During the Babylonian exile, before Babylon ransacked Jerusalem, we see this in Second Chronicles, God told the prophet Jeremiah, Babylon is coming, hide the ark. Because it was very common at that time for when a nation conquered another nation, they would run to the religious capital and steal the holiest object. Why? Now your God belongs to me. That's the symbol. I am now the person who has authority over your God. And I will utilize the powers of your God to rule this world. But they didn't understand that the Lord God will not be mocked that way. So Jeremiah hit the ark and he said, the ark will not be seen again until the time of the Lord had come. Now that verse is crucial. Fast forward to Revelation 11. In Revelation 11, John says, and in my vision, I saw the ark of the covenant. Now remember, you're a Jew. You've been waiting four or 500 years for the return of the ark. This is the heart of your identity as a Jewish person. As soon as he says that, guess what? All the Jews would be crying out. Tell us where it is. Let us restore it to the temple. Then, then we can have our kingdom as it once was. Well, therein lies the problem. He goes on in Revelation chapter 12 to say, I saw a great portent in the heavens, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars. And she's pregnant and she delivers a son who rules the world with an iron scepter. The Lord takes them into the wilderness. The serpent tries to devour her baby and all of that, right? Number one, everyone has always understood that the person could be no more than Mary, but it, it can also be an allegory for the church, but that woman fundamentally is Mary. When, if John is seeing this as a literal vision, then we need to understand what the images represent. To be clothed with the sun is to be clothed with divine glory. Why? Because we need to turn to the Psalms. Holy is the Lord God Almighty who clothes himself in light, who wraps himself in light. 
He clothes himself with the glory of the sun. So if Mary is clothed in the sun, God has endowed her with a heavenly queenship. She has the crown of stars. That means all of the heavens are under her rulership. She has the moon beneath her feet, which means earth. And even it, back then, they didn't understand the moon as a satellite. They, they, they thought of it as this thing that roams around the earth that rises and falls. But the earth and its natural processes are beneath her feet. That means Mary has been elevated to be queen over heaven and earth. Scripture is making that clear in its imagery. This is not contrived. So what all of this means is the apostles with, with the highest, accept, uh, with the highest uh, emphasis on John, but also Luke, place Mary at the level of queenship. This, this is not something that we invented. This is not something that the church con, uh, construed after 1,500, 1,600 years. The Christian church has held this for 2,000 years. And it's held this because Jesus paved the way for us to understand it that way. Marcus, several years ago, I was working and a uh, nurse practitioner came up to me. He knew I was a Catholic and we got along. We worked very well together. And, and then one day he kind of blasted me and talked about how Catholics pray to statues. We pray to saints. We pray to Mary. We should be taking it to Jesus. Um, and I think of the communion of saints. Could you kind of tie that all in how here, I'll give you another example. Uh, on social media, a lady was blasting Catholics for the same thing. And I said, well, do you have your family members pray for you when you're in need of prayer? Oh, yeah, sure. I go, well, we just ask our family up in heaven to pray for us, too. She goes, yeah, but they're dead. And I'm like, really? You know, we're spiritual beings. We do, Our soul and spirit don't die. Walk us through that and clarify that for us, if you would. Absolutely. Now, in order to understand this, we need to go all the way back to the book of the Exodus to understand the, the false uh, attack that this is. In Exodus chapter 20, moving on to 21, 22, we see the Ten Commandments, and it says, Thou shalt not make any graven images of anything in the heavens, on the earth, or under the earth, and bow down before them and worship them, for I am the Lord. And that's true, that's fine, that's well, and we completely understand that. The context of that command is given because back during Near Eastern culture, and during the time when the Ten Commandments were written, people very often made idols based on what they wanted to worship and then treated those things like God. So that's the first thing. God is saying, do not contain me to your imagination. I am Lord of this universe. You don't design me, I designed you. But if we take it a step further, like I mentioned, the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus 20 to about 22, right, the, the, the stipulations. Well, in Exodus 25, God then tells everyone, I want you to make the Ark of the Covenant, and this is how you're going to do it. And then he tells them, carve angels, carve winged beasts, carve images of the heavens, carve this, carve that. So if that command was meant to be so absolute that we are not to honor it, then when God says, go ahead and do it, what is he is he uh, com uh, contradicting himself? Well, no, it is to be understood rightly. Now, what that simply means is images that are made in veneration of the Lord our God and in honoring of his created handiwork is not only acceptable, it is beneficial to the faith of the people. As we can see, the Israelites honored and cherished the Ark of the Covenant for all of their existence, even until today. I think there's still a fragment of the Israelites who are still waiting for the return of the ark. I mean, someone ought to tell them that the ark has already come and went to heaven, but uh, that's, you know, <laughs> that, that's a discussion for another time. 
So from there, then I want to uh, direct our attention to Revelation chapter five, verse eight. So in Revelation five, John is seeing this vision, and in this vision, he's seeing incense rise from heaven, and to be taken up in bowls, these golden bowls, by elders in the heavens. Now the word elders, the Greek Greek word presbyteros, uh, is very easiest translated into priests. So priests in heaven, and we can get into that in a little bit. And what they do is they lift up these bowls, these censers of incense to the throne room of the Lord. Well, what scripture is saying is the intercession of the saints is a biblical reality. Why? Because John says the incense that's rising up that is carried by the elders to the throne room of God are the prayers of the saints on earth. Which simply means the scriptures are saying we have a direct connection to the, the throne room of heaven because we are present in the church on earth. And the church in heaven is alive in a, in a far infinitely greater way than the church is on earth. And this isn't a stretch of the imagination, if anything. Uh, if anything, what we are seeing here is a unification of the reality of life that we share with them and us. Why? Because God is the author of life. The closer they are to the principle of that life, the more alive they are. And that's why the scriptures tell us God is not a God of the dead, but the God of the living. He's not the God of corpses. He's the God of Abraham, Moses, Isaac, David, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and so on and so forth. Why? Because he's our God. And that means we are truly connected to our forefathers in a far greater way than we would have been if they were on earth. Now, I don't want to pre-canonize the man, but I love him dearly, Pope Benedict XVI. And I will tell you this. My hope is that he's in the beatific vision or at the very least approaching the beatific vision. But regardless of the situation, provided he died in the state of God's friendship, and I have to believe he did because his last words were, Lord, I love you, or Jesus, I love you, depending on the version of the report you read. Dying in God's friendship means he has died to experience some level of unification with the love of God, which simply means that whether you and I like it or not or realize it or not, we are more united to him now than, he than we were when he was on earth. And that's a consolation for us. Now, understanding this takes us a step further. Scripture says it's not just about being intimately united in relationship. They can help us. You know, uh, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, uh, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, right? Well, why? What, what did they do? Are, are they just surrounding us for the fun of it, to watch us, for entertainment? No, cheering us on that we may win the race. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of martyria, people who have died in the faith, because they are here to help egg us on this journey unto sainthood, because they have won and they know the way to victory. If we take that a step further, then they not only want to cheer us on, they want to help us. And God has granted them intercessory capabilities, as we see in scripture itself, in Revelation chapter 5. And whenever we lift up our prayers to the Lord, as we keep seeking their intercession, what they do, they, our brothers and sisters who are so close to the throne room of God, they lift up these prayers in union with the church to the throne room of God. And what this gives us is brotherly and sisterly assurance. We have people who relentlessly, instrumentally cause sanctification in our own souls. So I'm sorry, but the argument of you cannot ask uh, those who have passed on for intercession is not even biblical. There's a direct biblical contradiction to it. And, and you, you have to be biblically illiterate in, Revelation, uh, in the book of Revelation to be able to make that uh, positing. But I did, I did. I used to use that argument. 
And, and it's one that really doesn't hold water because scripture is just very outright about it, very clear about it. What really is Mary's role? Isn't it to bring people closer to her son? I mean, we look at Our Lady Guadalupe in the image. Her head is bowed. She's not a god, but that's misconstrued too. They think we're honoring Mary as God. You know, this whole thing about honoring Mary as God goes right back to how we understand worship. I remember dialoguing with some Protestants uh, about four years ago now. And they were, they were saying, look up the word worship. You know, she was, she was being like, that's fake sincerity. She was like, uh, well, look up the word worship in the dictionary. And she, she was just trying to be very cynical with me. And you will see that whatever you do for Mary checks every one of those boxes. And, and I, remember, I remember looking at her thinking, oh gosh, if Miriam Webster is how you look at the world, no wonder you've got problems in your theology. In order for us to understand what's going on here, Mary's role, we need to talk about what it means to treat God as God and what it means to treat creatures in their rightful place. What do Catholics do for God? Well, we worship God. What does it mean to say we worship God? Well, worship, covenantal worship throughout scripture has always entailed blood sacrifice. We offer sacrifice to God. And I'm not just talking about the sacrifice of our time, talents, uh, or you know, people say the sacrifice of our praise as they sing songs. No, I'm not talking about that. No, scripture is very clear. When we come forward to worship God, liturgical worship entails blood sacrifice. We still do that in the new and eternal covenant, except that the blood and body that we offer is metaphysical, which is greater than the physical. That's the first thing. It's transubstantiated, which is greater than the substantial on earth, but it's also divine, which is greater than the purely human and animalistic. And that's why we don't have to deal with animal blood anymore. If Jesus hadn't done what, we, what he had done, Brian, in no uncertain terms, you and I would have to be sacrificing lambs to this day. But because Jesus did what he did, we can be grateful of the fact that we have the body, blood, soul, and divinity of God himself to offer in worship. Now, if that's what we do for worship, then what do we do for the saints when we venerate them? Greek words, latria, which is worship that is given to God alone. We come down from there and you've got this whole category of dulia. Dulia is veneration. In its original context, we don't worship anyone but God because we offer blood sacrifice to God. But we give veneration to Mary, Joseph, and the saints because they are owed their rightful place after having been crowned in God's own glory. So what is Mary's role in all of this? We don't worship her. But you, I mean, I can understand why Protestants would think that if you have bad theology, you're going to look at what, what is Protestant worship? When I was in the Assemblies of God, this is what Protestant worship entails. Number one, you sing songs. Number two, you hear a sermon. Number three, you say prayers too. And number four, you pray for healing. Catholics do all of this with Mary. We, we, we sing songs to Mary all the time in Marian veneration. We give Marian talks all the time. Some of my favorite lectures are Mariology talks. We say prayers literally to Mary seeking her intercession. To pray simply means to ask of, right? We ask of Mary for her intercession all the time. And yes, some people will even in that intercession say, Mary, please pray for my healing. So yes, you, you pray for healing. A Protestant looks at that and goes, but we do that for God. So you must be treating Mary as God. The second thing they say is this. Well, you're treating Mary like a God because you're treating her as omnipresent. Because you, you think she can hear everyone's prayers at every single moment. 
Well, the church doesn't say Mary hears everyone's prayers at every single woman by herself. But when a soul is in heaven, they are united with the divine essence, with the glory of God, which means God has allowed all the saints in heaven a share in his capacity to hear and receive prayers. The book of Revelation makes that clear. So we are not treating Mary as God, but if anything, God has elevated the saints to a level of divine dignity, which then brings us to the real reality. Catholics don't worship Mary. We just don't. We don't offer blood sacrifice to Mary. There's never been a single mass offered to Mary. We can offer it in honor of a feast day that we may pray for her intercession, but never once have we prayed. And so Mary, we pray that you send forth your Holy Spirit into this gift that they, they may become for us the body and blood of yourself. We've never done that. That's, uh, that's blasphemy and heresy. No, the Eucharistic sacrifice is God's and God's alone. And that's true worship. What has happened in Protestantism is you've taken blood sacrifice out of the picture. And when you do that, you reduce worship to this devotional thing. And when worship becomes this devotional thing, every other devotion has to be dropped even more. Catholics, however, have such a high elevated level of understanding of worship that devotions can go up to this level. And they, they still won't be worshipped. And, and to be very honest, my father-in-law says this, it's a little reductionistic, but I firmly hold this to be true. If Protestants were to get their Eucharistic theology right, all of their heresy would come crumble. If they were to get John 6 right, all of their heresies would come crumbling. You know, I think of the words of Louis Imard, may thy Eucharistic kingdom come. And uh, Marcus, uh, tell, tell our viewers here how they can reach you or listen to your shows on Radio Maria if they're available or, you know, how do, how do they say they want to have you speak at their church or conference? Sure. So uh, if you log on to stpeterinstitute.com, uh, you're going to find a speaker form. Uh, just submit a form there. And uh, my, my bride, who is the managing director, is the one who manages all my speaking engagements. Uh, we are prioritizing local events largely because we have two little ones. Uh, Brian, I have to show you pictures uh, of, of baby, baby girl. She was born four and a half months ago now. And she's so adorable. Uh, and because of that, I'm, I'm trying my hardest to stay, uh, to stay close by. But my bride and I are at, at our core evangelists. So uh, reach out to us. We, we live to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Uh, log on to AveMariaRadio.net uh, or just Google Marcus Peter Ave Maria Radio and you're going to find a host of my resources as well. And or just Google Marcus Peter and you're going to find talks that I've done in various locations across the country and the world on YouTube. And whatever way you get in touch with me, LinkedIn or, or email address or whatever, just feel free to get in touch. Uh, if, if there are apologetics questions we can help with, we'd love to help. Uh, I'm starting up a second radio show with Avi Maria that's actually to help answer questions about the faith, you know, the sort of the format that we're doing right now. And yeah, uh, there are many ways to reach me at this point. It's, I, I got to tell you, Brian, when, when you first reached out to me uh, all that time ago, uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I was just hungry to preach the gospel. I was so grateful for every opportunity. And then I think the Lord kind of heard my prayer for that and, 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 and lavished it in spades because uh, I'm so blessed. I'm so blessed that I live for the proclamation of the gospel. And, and uh, people like you have been friends who have enabled me to do that. So I want to say thank you for that. Well, you know, the truth will set you free and um, you speak in love and truth. And that's doesn't get any better than that, Marcus. And uh, it's great to, great to see you again. 
I wish you all the best. If I remember, you're in the Diocese of Lansing, so particularly Michiganders are around uh, watching this. Uh, give, give Marcus and get in contact with him a, a call or an email. Uh, people, I hope you enjoy the show. I hope it cleared up some of the uh, mistakes or erroneous beliefs people have about the Catholic Church. I think it was Fulton Sheen said, uh, millions hate the church for what they think it stands for, but only a few hundred probably hate the church for what it really stands for. So Marcus, keep up the great work. Uh, God bless uh, to you and your family and your little family there growing up. And uh, we'll hope to see you back soon on Mercy Unbound. Right. Thank you, sir. God bless. God bless. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel for the video portion. The podcast can be heard at anchor.fm slash drbryan, B-R-Y-A-N, Thatcher, T-H-A-T-C-H-E-R, and on all the major podcast forums. I would love to speak at your church or conference, and please consider supporting our efforts to spread the truth to a hurting world. Thank you again. And for more information, go to the website at drbryanthatcher.com.